thought it was a timer. <laughs> um, Psalm 45, just a, just a quick thought uh, by way of introduction. Um, and thanks for the chance to do this, uh, Pastor Dennis. Just um, Psalm 45, and on the way here, um, I'm taking Psalms this semester in, in Bible college, and this was part of our, our reading. We've been tasked to read uh, five Psalms a day. Just uh, much like uh, Billy Graham's regiment, he would read five psalms a day, and he would also read the proverb of the day. And you get through the book of Psalms, and you get through Proverbs uh, once a month. So it's a, it's a cool little reading plan. Um, gets a little difficult when you get to Psalm 119, maybe. But, <laughs> um, but Psalm 45, we were, we were just talking on the way up, and uh, Pastor Dennis was actually reading the same psalm today, so the... The Lord, I guess, is uh, putting this on our on our hearts and leading us to just share a quick thought here. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 1. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. Um, and just to stop there and say that, yes, this is true. That my heart, that our hearts overflow. Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And that's what the psalmist here is speaking of concerning the king. And we know ultimately the king of kings speaking ultimately all of scripture about Jesus. And so he says, I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And when we put into our hearts, when we put into our minds the word of God, the thoughts of God, the theme of God himself and who he is as we sang, right? Our hearts overflow, bubble up and burst forth, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And when we're putting those good things in, then these, this good theme flows out. My heart, we can say with the psalmist, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready writer. We don't much have to stumble or, or ponder, but we have something at the ready to say because our meditation day and night has been upon the law of the Lord, has been upon who he is, has been upon God himself, who is the law perfectly fulfilled. And then we are a steady tree planted by rivers of living water. And those rivers are also flowing from our bellies, John chapter 7. And we have a word in season to him who is weary. We have a, a, a word, a rhema, that the Lord has given us. It's not our message. It's not our, we, we preach not ourselves, but Christ, right? So it's, it's a good word. It's a good theme. And that is our king. The good theme that we have overflowing from our mouths, from our lives is our king, Jesus. And just the first part of the, the next verse is, is this. You are fairer than the sons of men. He's so much better. Amen. Jesus is so much better than all the world has to offer, than all, all people on the earth. And this also indicating the divinity of Jesus here. He's more than just a man. He's more than a prophet 
or a teacher. He's fairer than the sons of men, for he is, in fact, the Son of God. And grace is poured upon your lips. And so we, we are able then to minister that same grace as that grace is on our lips. Let, let your spe- speech be seasoned with salt, right? That it may impart grace to the hearers. And whenever we speak of God, whenever we speak of God whose very disposition and nature is grace, when we're speaking of our good God, this good theme, then our words will be gracious because they'll be of him. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Yeah, great word. Yeah, I just love, uh, I was reading Psalm uh, 45, 25, Psalm 25 uh, today, just um, thinking about the truth of God. And I like, you know, in the beginning how it says there's like a theme in my heart. And um, how are men going to know you? They're going to know you by the theme that's in your heart. And these days, it's very easy to have a theme that is not gospel-centered. You know, and um, that's why I love, you know, being here in Frederick and stuff. But I want us just to remember, like, let's not be, you know, comfortable. What's going on here? <laughs> Let us not be, you know how sometimes you have this saying where you say, I'm just going to, like, I finally found somebody that I can have, like, friendship with, and I can let my hair down. (laughs) Josh doesn't say that. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) You know? But, I mean, what that means is that you are free to be yourself, and you don't have to guard yourself. But in another sense, what that means is that you found somebody who has the same opinions that you have. So you begin to communicate the same opinions and that is often referring to, in society, something that is negative, right? Like we could have a certain political theme in our hearts, and I could find somebody in the church and talk about that. And then there's somebody over here who has an opposing theme, right? So now what happens? <laughs> wow. Or I could be, you know, I had a bad day, so the theme of my heart is very negative, and I communicate negativity with somebody else. What is what's going to happen? You know, I, I, I've learned, and I'm learning. When I get home from work, I don't, I can't be tired. You know, doesn't matter how tired I am, I can't come home and be tired and have a bad attitude. Because when I get home, who's waiting for me? You know. Elias and Kaylee, they're both waiting. And if I get home and I have a bad day, if I have a bad theme in my heart, probably the night is going to be terrible. And I believe that in that psalm, he is asking us to kind of understand and let the word of God enter into our hearts and let there be a new theme in our hearts. You know, let's turn to John chapter 18. It's kind of funny because I, I preached a little bit from this on Sunday, not knowing that I was supposed to be talking about it today, according to our bookmark. 
you know, but the theme will be a little bit different. But in, in John 18, uh, Jesus is before Pilate. Now, could you imagine the same Jesus of Psalm 45, who is better than the sons of men? Uh, later on, it says that he is clothed with majesty. It says his arrows are so sharp that they pierce the kings of this world. It says that there is a sword that is ready at his hip. This same Jesus, this same bridegroom, and we are the bride that is talking about in Psalm 45. This same Jesus is standing before Pilate. And what does he have to do? In one sense, he has to defend himself. (laughs) He has to give a reason for the way that he lived his life. He has to give a reason to the Jewish government and the Roman government on how he loved the untouchables. You know, the same God in Psalm 45 has to justify himself. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's turn there. Let's just read uh, verses 28 through 40. And um, just follow along. I'm reading from the New King James. So they, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to, uh, yes, what's this word? Petruium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Petruium, lest they should be defiled. But they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, <laughs> we would not have delivered him up to you. Yeah, this is so interesting that the, the Jewish, you know, you guys probably know what the Jewish tradition, I mean, they were not allowed to bring Jesus in because of the Passover. Actually, at the garden, they were not allowed to arrest him with their Jewish tradition because of the, the, the Passover being right then. They were doing things uh, in a way that was very secretive, and you could say uh, that was very evil, Right? And they bring Jesus to Pilate, and later on, Pilate actually uses these words. He has this confession about Jesus. He says, I, have, I find no fault in him. I, have, I find no fault in him. But here are these Jewish leaders. They are bringing Jesus before Pilate, and they said, if he was not an evildoer, then we wouldn't be bringing him here. Now, if you have read the gospel, could you... Explain to me what evil that Jesus has done. I keep going back to Malachi chapter 4 where it says that you burden me. Let's turn there. Um, I don't know if I can find the verse exactly. I'll put my bookmarker here. Malachi 4. It says that you burden me with your question. So it's not four. Maybe it's two. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, I can't. Oh, verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? You know, here, here these religious men bring Jesus before Pilate, and what are they doing? They are wearying the Lord. They are saying, this man who did good has done evil, and those men out there that are doing evil, they are good. They were justifying, in one way we could say they're justifying themselves in front of the Son of God by saying what they have done is righteous, and what, they, what Jesus has done is unrighteous. They, have weary, they are wearying the Lord. And in today's society, I mean, these are the two questions you, you hear the most. This person is doing evil, but actually we're going to call it good. And the second thing it says, well, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? And we're going to get there in John chapter 18 in, in a little while. But let me ask you this question. How is a kingdom established? I'm not talking about the kingdom of God. But in general, how is a kingdom established? Power, force, military, what else? Bribery? <laughs> I mean, it happens. Manipulation? Control? I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we could say that you know, and I'm not picking on America, but on any, I mean, you can look at many of our presidents. Like, how did they get in the position that they got? <laughs> I mean, were they elected? Okay, maybe they were, but, okay, but how did they get there? Like, there was probably a little bit of bribery going on, you know, to get in those right schools and, you know, to get rid of those bad marks and to get rid of those things and to hide the skeletons. And there's all this kind of thing. But how often do you see a kingdom that is based on righteousness? Now, God, now the question is, is, where is the God of righteousness? I look outside and I ask, where is the God of righteousness? I look at this story at John chapter 18 and I say, where is the God of righteousness? I mean, why is Jesus? And we know because of the plan of salvation and all that stuff. But from another point of view, why is Jesus... Standing before Pilate, defending himself, defending his kingdom, and being called an evildoer. Let's continue. Verse 31, John chapter 18. Then Pilate said to him, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Not only was this man an evil man, but he was a man worthy of Roman crucifixion in the eyes of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That they say of Jesus might be fulfilled, which was spoken, signified by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the Praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered to him and said, 
Are you speaking for yourself or this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And, I, and Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? <laughs> what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Amen. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You, have right, you, you say rightly that I am the, a king. For this cause, listen to this, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I come into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Listen to that one more time. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. You know, I was studying this early this morning, and it's very interesting. Many scholars try to uh, assume or project what Jesus is talking about when he says the truth. <laughs> and I find, I myself found myself digging in, in, in different books, reading the Greek, and, and studying and trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about. And then I, I read this one commentary, he says, Jesus doesn't ever define the truth that he's talking about, that he is a witness of. He never does here in this story. And the scholar says, because the truth that he is talking about is so vast that we will spend all of eternity continuing to learn it. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, I sit here and I open this Bible and I think I know something and I learn it and I study it. And I'm like, now I understand this. And you know what happens? God tests me in it. And then you know what happens? I fail. <laughs> Dr. Stevens taught us, he says, that you never actually know something until you pass the test. Until you apply what you know. Meaning this, you say you love, you love your enemy, and then you're given the test of actually loving your enemy. Your enemy is on the side of the street and he has a flat tire. And what do you do? Yeah. You say, hey, Hong Kong Kong, look at you, sucker. <laughs> yeah, we say we know forgiveness. You know, and then adultery is committed. And then I am forced to, forget, be forced to forgive. I say that I know grace. I say that I know saldo. You know, you can go on and on through the word of God and different doctrines that God teaches. And we can say like, hey, I know these. I know this. I know this. But I don't really know it until I begin to practice it in my life. So it becomes a part of who I am. And here is this saying. It says again. For this cause I come in the world that I should bear witness to the truth. You know, he is bearing witness to something. It doesn't ever describe what the truth is because it's so vast that we will continue to spend all eternity understanding how God thinks and learning what God is doing. You know, today, you know, grace 
Does she know God more than she knew God 40 years ago? Yes, I assume. I mean, she's pretty awesome today. You know, what was she like 30 years ago? I don't know. But, but she loved God then, right? I mean, more than 30, right? How, how many years? Uh, 42. Yeah, 42. Yeah, it's a long time. You know, I hope I love God in 42 years. <laughs> you know, but you, then you grow and you're learning. You're sitting under a pulpit. You're learning theology. You're learning doctrine. You're in the body of Christ. You're growing and maturing with God. And is Grace a mature Christian? And we could say yes, but she's not done learning. You know, me, I am studying, I, I grow and mature, and have I stopped learning about who God is? No, I have not stopped learning. It is so vast that I will continue to learn the truth. And Jesus said that he came to this earth for one purpose, to be a witness. To be a witness. This word is, is, is amazing. Let me see if I can find this. I, I left the order of my notes, so. Yeah, yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> I put it in here somewhere, so there it is. The word witness in the Greek means to testify and to give evidence. So Jesus' whole life, what was it doing? He was testifying of the truth. Jesus' life and Jesus' words were testifying of the truth. Jesus' life and Jesus' words gave evidence of the truth. And that, that is why Jesus says that you can look at the skies and you can know when it's going to rain, but you can't look and see the times that it is now. You know, there are so many people and they have, they are prophesying of what's going to happen and this is going to happen. But Jesus is saying you don't see that the truth, Jesus says I am the way and the truth. You don't see that the truth is standing right in front of you. And Jesus' disciples asked, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak in stories? Why do you speak so cryptively? Well, and he says because some have ears, but they do not hear. Some have eyes, but they do not see. And he said to the Pharisees, he said in, in Luke chapter 8, he said to the Pharisees, he says, if you were blind, you would be healed. Oh, no, 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 sorry. He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. Even, even stronger. If you were blind, you would have no sin. Meaning that there seems in the Bible to be a group of people that don't understand the witness of Jesus Christ testifying and giving evidence of the truth. It is the same today. There are those that refuse to believe. There are those who can't believe. There are many reasons for people not to understand. But it says that Jesus came that he would give evidence and testify of the truth. Let's turn to one verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. 
This is Paul talking, of t- talking to Timothy. You could take Timothy's name out and put your own name there. You can say Paul is talking to you. 1 Timothy 6.13, it says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession. So if you continue to read the story, what Paul is telling Timothy, that as Jesus gave a good confession, or was a good witness, says the same thing in Revelation, that Jesus is our witness, You know, as Jesus did this before Pilate, so are you in your walk with God. I was thinking about this today and different types of truth. You know, I was reading a book about different types of truth. There is objective truth, normative truth, subjective truth, and complex truth. Now, we all know what objective and subjective truth is, right? Objective is what actually exists and can be proven. So let me ask you a question. Can the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is it objective? And theologically, we say yes. But in this story, we have something different. We'll get there. Subjective is how I, as an individual, um, interpret the world or how my experience interprets reality. So when I look at the Bible, and just as the Jews are sitting here, there is Pilate, there are the Pharisees, uh, some of the disciples are there, the Sanhedrin is there, the 70 Sanhedrin is there. There are some that are objective, some that are subjective. And here's what happens. It, when there is a group of people who are subjective, what can happen in that group is that now there is something new. It's called a normative truth. And that is what a group sees and agrees to be true. Okay, so here is Jesus. You know, you look at his life and you see all the great things. The evil things that he does is he heals people on the Sabbath. <laughs> he forgives people of their sins. And he points to himself being God. Those were the three things that he was accused of. And objectively, we could look and we say, is this truth or is Jesus an evildoer? <laughs> or we could look at this and we could look at it subjectively. And here, look at this. The Pharisees were looking at the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They were looking at those, and they were judging Jesus according to the Torah. They took the objective word of God, they interpreted it subjectively, and came up with a normative truth, and as a whole, they were all saying, Jesus is guilty. And here is Jesus, he is standing before Pilate, and saying, I was born for this one reason. To testify, to be a witness, to give evidence of the truth. Now you understand why Pilate, what does he say next? What is truth? Say a little bit more sarcastic, because that's the kind of tone he had. What is truth? Yeah, what is, you know, you can see him maybe laughing, 
or rolling his eyes, maybe. Because Pilate understood this. Actually, the idea of objective truth as it is today is ridiculous. <laughs> you go out there, and we're talking about it on the ride here. If you are a believer, where are you getting information from about God? Are you going to the Bible? Are you studying the Bible? Are you praying? Or are you going to YouTube and blogs? Yeah, I mean, I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, but I, I, you know, I teach in a Bible school, so I know where my students get their information. <laughs> you know, they're, they're looking at blog sites, and they're looking at YouTube, and all of a sudden, they, they gather all this information. They don't come up with their own conviction, but they gather all this information, and they come up with their own version of truth. And the thing is, is that it's normal, it's the normative truth now for everybody to have their own subjective truth. Because not one person has truth. It used to be that when you would go to somebody, I was listening to a podcast about this, you know, uh, earlier. And he was saying, it used to be that you would, somebody would say you're a Christian. Everybody understood what you meant. But now, you have to ask them to define that. I've heard it here, right out front here. I asked somebody a couple weeks ago, do you believe in God? He says, yes, but not the God you believe. Not the version of God you believe. Oh, what do you mean by that? And he goes and he, and he took this truth and this truth and this truth and this truth. And he took all these subjective truths and, and mixed them up and came with an idea. And guys... What is happening today was the same thing in the Roman Empire. It is the same reason why Pontius Pilate shrugged his shoulders and rolled his eyes and said, what is truth? Because truth does not exist. It did not exist. How was the Roman Empire established? Lies, deceit, warfare, manipulation, bribery. Every sin in the book was committed to establish the Roman Empire and continued to happen to keep the kingdom reigning. And here is Pilate. He is in a position of great authority and he knows exactly what is being said, what exactly is being done because he's seen it over and over and over. He's seen people. You know, could you imagine you know, being a young Roman soldier coming in and thinking you're going to be something and you're praying to the Roman gods and you find out it's not working <laughs> because they're fake gods. So what do you do? You do whatever you can. And all of a sudden, it's like this great kingdom, this great thing is happening, but behind it is all lies. It is all subjective. And Jesus here is pointing out in the own Jewish tradition, not religion, but tradition, there was normative truth. And people were not being objective. So we could ask a similar question just as Pilate asked. You know, how can I today in this world understand what objective truth is? How can I understand if what I read in the Bible is true? A guy we met on Saturday says there's more evidence for reincarnation than the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ. 
he said there's more evidence for reincarnation to be real than, I didn't say Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I said a historical Jesus. I mean, there is so much information on a historical Jesus without even talking about him being the Son of God. He was real in history. And he says, no, it's all hogwash. He manipulated information. But I believe reincarnation. You know what he tells me? Watch this YouTube video. <laughs> you know, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, guys, brothers, sisters, you know, Elias, uh, you know, we can't live our life in subjective or normative truth. We have to live our life in objective truth. And for us to be objective, we better be able to stand on our two feet with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, when we stand before Pilate in 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 13, what will our confession be? You know, meaning that it is possible for me today to be a believer, and then I have to give an account for my objective truth, but I don't have a good confession. What is the reason why people today don't have good confessions? Okay. That's maybe why... Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? What's that? Yeah. 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 Because in church, what do you learn? Truth. You learn truth. You learn how God thinks. So for me to be, you know, to have objective truth, you know, and I, I see this, you know, we've seen it a little bit in our church. I mean, every church sees it, younger people leaving the faith. You know, why? They were in a church. They received objective truth. But what happens? It never became theirs. It never became theirs. You know, we need to learn. We need to learn how God thinks. And we need to not only learn it, but build convictions on how God thinks. Because when I have a learned, if I learn how God thinks, I have a conviction of God, how God thinks, it gives me the authority and power to stand before Pilate. Yes. I mean, how did Paul say before King Agrippa? He is standing before King Agrippa, and Agrippa says that you almost turned me. Why did that almost happen? Because Paul had a good confession. He didn't, like, back down from what God has said and done in his life, but he stood up for it and almost converted King Agrippa. He had a good confession. He learned and he had convictions on how God thought. And where do we learn how God thinks? We learn it in the church. As soon as we are saved, we, are, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and that we are baptized in the Spirit, but we're also supposed to be baptized into the church. If I'm sitting at home and reading my Bible as I should, but that's it. Then what happens? There is so much subjectivity. There is so much subjectivity. 
But what happens when I come into the body of Christ? I take these thoughts, and sometimes unknowingly, the body of Christ corrects my thinking with God. And sometimes we realize it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we realize it years later, you know? (laughs) But the body of Christ can help me to think with God. Here's another thing. is It's in the body of Christ where I can experience the love of Christ. I can read about love. I can read about agape love, but I can never experience it outside of the body of Christ. I can read about forgiveness, you know, but I need to be in the church where I can experience forgiveness. Uh, Pastor... Uh, Ronaldo, several years ago during convention, said that, you know, I, I don't know, he used something like, the church will offend you and I will offend you. And he talked like a whole entire 30 minutes on those two thoughts, saying the church is going to offend you and, the, and I'm going to offend you. Like the church is a great place to learn grace and forgiveness and love <laughs> because we offend each other. We make mistakes. We get to know each other's dark secrets. Uh, you know, we feel comfortable you know, around each other. Why? Because that is where Christ is. So outside the body of Christ, I am crippled in my understanding of who God is. You can experience God outside the church, absolutely. You can experience God in your personal prayer. You can experience God in your, in your personal praise and your, in your, in your Bible reading. But you experience it in another way in the body of Christ. Because the Bible says that we are fitly joined together. You know, we were designed to be together. And each one of us has a place where we belong in the body of Christ. And that is where we learn the truth. And that is where I learn to be objective in that truth and not be subjective. Pastor Schauer mentioned uh, a couple, whatever, days ago, this idea, and I'll, I'll say it in my own words, the idea that there could be a group of believers that are subjective in their thinking with God. And then that group, that church becomes, instead of objective truth, they have normative truth. And he's saying that churches can function like that. And I have been in them, you know, country club kind of churches where you go because that's where you've gone, where you go because that's where your friends go. We went to one church after every service, all the teenagers, I was, I was a youth pastor. After every time I preached, they would all get out their laptops and play, you know, play some sort of computer game for the next three hours. You know, so why did they come to church? So they could play LOL, you know, <laughs> play online, play video games. You know, there could be a group of believers where they're so subjective in their tradition and in their religion that they become normative. And that's why we have, like, guys, you know, come out and start revivals, the Great Awakening. Um, You know, just these Martin Luther coming out with his 95 Thesis. We have these great men coming out and shaking it up a little bit and saying, hey, wait a minute, something is wrong here. And that's what we need in our life is that we, when we come to church, and that's why, you know, you guys come to church, but also for me. Like, where do I go? 
Like, who's to say what I teach is objective or subjective? I mean, for one, you guys better keep me honest. <laughs> but for two, you know, I have a pastor also, and he keeps me honest. And then, you know what? I, I pray to God every single night, God, and I pray every time we meet, this is your word. This is your Bible. You need to open it. You need to communicate. You need to have a thought. You need to minister the truth. And I love what it says at the end there. It says that those, John 18, 30, uh, 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know, it's amazing to see all the mess that's going on in the world. And a lot of people say the churches are dying. You know, and I, I've read some articles and how COVID has hurt the church. But there's also something else happening. Yes, that is happening. Yes, maybe less people believe in God. But there are those that hear the voice of God. They hear the voice of God. They hear the voice of God and they run. Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. And they hear my voice. They hear my voice. You know what? When uh, um, Nehemiah and Ezra and these men went back to Jerusalem, you read a lot about them, right? But I mean, maybe you guys know the number, but how many people went from Babylon back to Jerusalem? It was a small number, right? Small percentage. I remember hearing the number. It was very small, in the single digits, I believe, of people who went back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Who do we read about? We, we read about that, you know, three or four percent. We don't read about the other 90 plus percent that stayed in Babylon. Because what was happening is God was with that few percent. See, here today in our life, I am not concerned about what the world is saying. I'm not concerned about the subjective or normative truths that are going around today. Because I only hear one voice. And that is the voice of God. And they can say what they want to say. They can, and it doesn't matter to me because it's not going to affect my relationship with God. Because I am a sheep. I am a child of God. I am of the truth. And I hear the voice of God. And I run to where God is. And that's what we do in our church. We're like, hey, what's going on today? We have a day off. What's going on? What are you doing? Hey, we're going to go over here and have a Bible study. We're going to go over here and have a rap. You know, our church, uh, Greater Grace, they said it was, was built in Dunkin' Donuts. And half of Dr. Stevens' messages were written on Dunkin' Donuts napkins. Because that's what would happen. You would hear a great message like this, and then they would go to Dunkin' Donuts, and they would talk. They'd be stirred up in our soul about what God is saying to us. You know, today, I don't know where we are in our walk with God, but you are here. On Sunday, we were here. There was a great group of people, and God is building his church God is doing something great, but in our life, let's continue to receive 
the voice of God, the objective word of God, and let's hear him. And when he speaks, let's be excited. <laughs> and when God is doing something, let's say, hey, let's, I want to do it with you, God. Oh, but, you know, this isn't going to be much fun. Oh, it is, because God's going to be there. And I, I mean, I just, I have, yeah, I, I know God is going to do something. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about Hood College starting a university outreach and Bible study in Hood College. I was thinking the other day, Grace, in your own building, you know, we could have a Bible study over in that, that, that lunchroom over there. Pastor Steve Angelonis meets in the same building, in, a similar building in Dundalk, and he, and he gets like 20 people from the, the apartment complex to meet him for the Bible. Why can't we do that at Grace's place? Why can't we be, uh, have a homeless outreach? Why can't we be in the prison ministering to the cellmates, the, the inmates? You know, why can't we be doing ride-alongs like Pastor Halley does with the police officers? There is so much that we can do because God is with us. And it's not about putting, you know, butts in these seats. I told Sherry today, I called her today. I said, you know what, you know, and she started saying, oh, I might not make it on Sunday. I said, Sherry, I'm not calling you to get you to come to church. (laughs) Because what happens is we hear the word of God. We hear the voice of God and we are encouraged. We are encouraged in our faith. And then the result is we are drawn. I don't care if you come to this church. You could go to another church. But hear the voice of God and be drawn by him. And hear his voice and hear his voice and hear his voice. God is going to do something amazing with his fellowship here. And I, I, I hope you're excited as I am. I, I hope that you look at it and you are encouraged in saying... I'm so glad to be a part of the work of God. I'm a part, excited to see what God is going to do. We were talking about making a trip to Egypt with Seme, a missions trip to Egypt. I mean, uh, we were invited to Puerto Rico by, with Pastor Cooper. I talked to him yesterday morning. I saw him at, at 6 o'clock in the morning. I saw him at Home Depot. He says, let's go to Puerto Rico and do a missions trip in Puerto Rico. God is moving. God is still communicating. God's presence is still here. And remember, Psalm 45, read it. It says that we are the bride. We are the bride. And we are loved greatly by God. Amen.